I woke up one day or a series of days and didn't really think that my future was going to be better than my past. And that's a really scary place to be in. I think that leads to a lot of mental health issues and devastating situations for people. And it wasn't that I didn't like my life or my situation or my business or I didn't, wasn't proud of what we accomplished with Tom's, but I realized that if we, anyone, and me specific in this situation, if we are looking to external accomplishments, external praise, anything, anything, even your kids' love for your sense of peace and joy, ultimately you will realize that it doesn't work. And that is a really scary place to land. And that's where I landed. The things that were holding me back was not paying attention to the little things in my life, the internal things. I was so externally focused that I wasn't really taking care of myself. And so I've really committed even more so to journaling and the power of prayer and the power of meditating on and asking for clarity and messages from whatever you believe in. And it has continued to play a huge role in my life. That's Blake Mykoski, and this is episode 561 of the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to the podcast. First up, I want to thank everybody who has ordered Voicing Change, my new book. The early response has been overwhelmingly awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, to learn more and pick up your copy, visit richroll.com slash VC. We're selling it exclusively through our site, not on Amazon, and we are shipping globally. And I just might add, it makes for a great gift. While you're on my website, you can also take a moment to check out our Plant Power Meal Planner, thousands of customized plant-based recipes at your fingertips, access to nutrition coaches, and tons more, all for just $1.90 a week at meals.richroll.com. I get tons of emails about nutrition, way too many to answer. And the Plant Power Meal Planner is really our response, our best effort to make healthy plant-based eating simple, delicious, affordable, and most of all, convenient. So again, meals.richroll.com. Okay, so today's guest is somebody I've been wanting to convene with for many moons. His name is Blake Mykoski, and he is quite the change maker. The man most famously known as the founder of the wildly successful shoe company, Tom's, which not only was a company that pioneered the one-for-one -one business model where they donate a pair of their ubiquitous shoes to a person in need, 95 million to date, for every pair purchased, but also really sparked a, a generation of conscious consumers and ultimately helped redefine how corporate America thinks about and practices conscious capitalism. But Blake's story neither begins nor ends with Tom's. A seeker and serial entrepreneur, if there ever was one, Blake's latest venture is called Made For. And it's this really cool 10-month program that applies key principles of modern neuroscience, psychology, and physiology to make your brain and your body better. It's basically 
an at-home spiritual quest guided by the best and the brightest thought researchers out there, including podcast fave and neuroplasticity overlord, Dr. Andrew Huberman. As always, a few more things to mention about Blake and the epic conversation to come, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today, that's wakingup.com slash richroll. Okay, Blake, this one is so good, but it's much more than the story of an incredible career. It's about what it means to be a seeker, the power of bringing a spiritual perspective to not just business, but to life, to service and a relentless commitment to persistent personal growth. It's a conversation about Tom's, of course, 
but it's more about the kind of person that imagines Tom's. It's about intuition, the stewardship required to scale an idea into a global phenomenon and the commitment to service that led to Made For. It's also a conversation about breaking the addiction to external validation. It's about navigating the world through a spiritual lens. It's about not being afraid to ask questions and more importantly, the courage to face the answers. Without a doubt, Blake is indeed a very special human. It was an honor to finally spend some time with him and a delight to share this experience chock full of sage business and life advice with you guys. For those feeling stagnant or stuck, my hope is that Blake's words catalyze change and help you find a little bit more inner peace. And lastly, if this one leaves you intrigued to learn more about Made For, Blake has generously gifted all of you guys 20% off the Made For program. Just use the code RICHROLL at getmadefor.com. I'm not an affiliate, I'm just spreading the good news. And with that, I give you Blake Mykoski. Right on, man, you're here in the flesh. We've been trying to make this happen. I can't remember when we first started going back and forth on email, but it was probably like two years ago or something like it's that at this point. It's been a really long time coming. <laughs> I'm glad we could do it face to face. I appreciate you coming out here um, to make this happen. So many cool things to, to talk about with you. I'm actually like, what, what's the way in with this guy? Because there's so <laughs> many, but maybe one, one way we can kick it off is to talk about this mutual acquaintance that we have. Yeah, April. the shaman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, explain to people who April is. Man, that is a hard, um, hard bill. Um, April's a shaman uh, and she um, has an amazing gift of taking people on vision quest. I went uh, to the medicine wheel um, which is kind of equivalent of America's Stonehenge mm. uh, with her on top of a mountain in Wyoming for four days mm. about a year and a half ago. And it radically altered many aspects of my life. Yeah. And uh, since then, I check in with her about every six months and for guidance on different things. And her ability to connect and communicate with supernatural aspects of this human experience is 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 something that seems like impossible, but um, but she's always so accurate. Yeah, I consider myself a pretty rational individual who also has a spiritual bent. Like I'm open, you yeah. know. And I've gone and done sessions with her, and have never left one of those sessions without feeling completely rocked by her insight. All of which ultimately are proven true in the short term <laughs> or in the long term. Yeah. Like all our kids have done sessions with her. My wife goes to see her like all the time yeah. and it's amazing. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I don't know what it is. I've stopped, you know, trying to answer that question, but um for me it's this wild. is the way I've tried to explain to people who think that anything in this realm is 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 very hard to believe and that is like I have, uh, you know, a, a, a not legally adopted, but basically adopted Ethiopian son. Right. He's 24 years old. And I met him when he was 14, living in rural Ethiopia. And I agreed to take him on and have supported him ever since. And he spends holidays with us. Mm -hmm. and, and so for all practical purposes, I'm his second father. And, you know, he and I always talk about how it's just incredible. Like we don't pause and think about the fact that I can take a picture 
of myself or, or what I'm doing that day and push a button and almost instantaneously, he's in rural Ethiopia on his iPhone, mm. he gets that picture. So that uh, data travels through air across continents, across oceans, and then you know lands on his phone. And so when I think of April's gifts and people who have these gifts, it's you know they have the, the a receptor that we don't have that mm -hmm. is you know catching information uh, that is traveling you know through. And right. So that's the way I look at it. It's right, like a right, transistor right. radio. She has a dial can, that I don't yeah. have. She can tap into a certain frequency <laughs> exactly. that you know escapes. So it's mere not mortals. that crazy to think about <laughs> when you think about how the picture yeah. gets to Ethiopia. What is what is an insight that she provided you with that that you know rocked you? Um, you know, there was uh, a, a really amazing experience that happened where I had a vision when on the wheel with her of a person. Um, from my past and a um, and a uh, uh, a message to um, help this person out and help them out in a pretty significant financial way uh, and doing it anonymously. Mm. And I called my business manager who thought I was completely crazy and said, this is what I want to do. I don't want it to ever be back to me and just want it to happen. I had this vision. It was it's something that was really important to me based on some things in the past. And I had not seen this person in 10 years. Um, and uh, I um, did it and no link back to me, nothing. Um, but this person um, uh, I could have run into in the 10 years because we have similar circles that mm -hmm. we're in, but literally for 10 years had not run into this person. And then on a very, very important day spiritually in my life, um, months later, um, I, when, when, when seeing this person would have meant something to me and I don't want to give away this person's identity. Um, I went to a yoga class at a studio in a city that I've never been at cause I was there, um, randomly. Um, and every single mat in the whole place, uh, was full except one mat when I got there late and I went and I sat down on the mat and this person was sitting next to me uh -huh. and I just looked at him. And it was just, I, I literally, I don't have seen the Truman Show. I looked up and, and I was ready for the, <laughs> I was ready right. for the, the world to part, uh -huh. or the sky to part and someone say, cut, he right. did it. Like mm. he passed the test. And I mean, to this day, I get goosebumps telling the story. Well, that's a very specific example of, of what I think is a recurring theme of your life. Like this kind of shit is happening to you all the time. Like you, there is something about who you are, your presence, your disposition, your worldview, your energy that does work like this beacon of attraction, not to get too secrety about the whole thing, sure. but I think there is, you know, I am a believer in that. And I think that you're somebody who navigates the world from that kind of perspective of attraction, like this knowingness, like this is gonna work out. Like, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to, you know, I really wanna connect with that person. I don't need to make it happen. Like it will just, it's going to transpire because this is the energy that I'm emitting from yeah. you know, my dome, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's I mean, played out in your life like a lot of times. Especially in different ways. with my journaling practice. That's something that uh, over the years has really um, kind of 
really confirm this belief of that we can manifest manifest the life and the opportunities um because i've been journaling since i was 15 mm -hmm. i do it every single day it's like the one thing i i actually more consistent journaling than brushing my teeth or taking a shower mm. like you know like i um i just it's something i've always done and a couple years back uh, as part of a, a film project, I had to go back and read a bunch of my journals, and ha and have to, and I have like a big fire safe full of hundreds and hundreds of journals, uh -huh. and it was amazing to read what I was writing about at age fifteen and sixteen. It all came true by age twenty. What I was writing about at age twenty all happened in my thirties. Like, and it wasn't like. Uh, it, it, and some of it was a, almost in the form of prayer. Um, it, some people would characterize, but really it was just, this is what I want in my life. This is what I want to bring into my life. This is what I think I can do if given these um, opportunities um, to be responsible and, and to use my life for the highest service. And every single thing uh, continues to happen. So, so when you when you reflect upon that, you know, what do you make of that? Like what what I, was the the... I think it's kind of what you're saying. I think there's something um, that we can't scientifically prove uh, that um, that we have the capacity as humans to really, um, if we put enough vision and interest uh, in an outcome happening, uh, if our intentions are good, mm -hmm. I think, um, and if it's going to work for the greater good of humanity, I think a lot of it can happen. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, it's not like it's a wish list. You write it down; it happens tomorrow. But the th the the themes of all of it have happened, and a lot of it in great specificity of what was written. And so I've I've really committed even more so to journaling and the power of prayer and the power of you know really med meditating on um, um, in asking for clarity and messages from whatever you believe in. Yeah. Um, and it and it has continued to play a huge role in my life. Well, there is something powerful about taking a thought that's occurring to you. And when you write it down, it becomes just a little bit more real. Yeah. And when you revisit that or you repeat it, it becomes a little bit more entrenched and then it finds its way into your kind of daily awareness. And then it gets spoken about. And before you know it, there's a, you know, a material representation of that idea, even if just a kernel, to build upon, yeah. and that's how all dreams are created, constructed, yeah. right? Absolutely. So when you when you journal, does it take a certain? Is there a form to that? Like, is it? It doesn't sound like it's the artist way. Kind of morning pages. It's mm. more intentional. No, it's that. definitely not morning pages. And I, I like that practice, and I have done that at times when I've wanted to kind of create some more creativity flow in my life. But uh -huh. but really for me, it's um, a little bit of reflecting on you know, what's happened in the last day, week, or, you know, this experience today mm -hmm. and what I learned from it and, and kind of, um, you know, as if I was writing to uh, a future self that wanted to learn from the experience. Right. And then a lot of it is, is, and what am I, um, you know, what am I wanting to bring into my life? So it is a little bit in the vision manifesting, right. you know, and, and this is what I want, like, you know, to bring into my life with my son this week. You know, I have my son this week and, you know, he's gonna be, I really wanna bring into giving him an experience to, you know, go boogie boarding and help him with his fear of the ocean. And this is what I'm planning on. It's almost like a game plan for my life. Uh -huh. And um, and so for me, I think that also helps me, um, 
I think it's like have less um, stress or anxiety with how I'm going to spend my time because I kind of map it out mm -hmm. in the journal and or what experiences I want to have. Um, and then, you know, it also gives me a thing to go back and look at later if I need to, if I was going through a hard time or having a challenging experience and really kind of see how that was affecting me. Uh, and oftentimes I find that what felt like was really challenging then turned out not to be so much. And then that helps me kind of deal with challenging situations in real time with more confidence because it's kind of like that saying, this shall to pass. Right. You know, it's like you kind of realize like, um, you know, one of my favorite quotes of all time is uh, from this poem, If by Rudyard Kipling. Uh -huh. And it says, if you can meet triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. Mm. And I feel like my journal has taught me that over and over again. Yeah. It's like nothing's as good as, I, as it was when I was writing it down and nothing is as challenging as it was when I was writing it down. Right, and academically or intellectually, we know that to be true, but when it gets tested <laughs> in the real world, right? When you're <laughs> flying high oh, yeah. and oh, like yeah. selling your company yeah. or you're at your low point, you know, Going it's pretty divorce, hard to yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, put those into yeah. motion. Yeah, totally. There's a lot of, um, talk these days about practices like journaling and mindfulness and meditation, all these self-care practices that have really become, you know, mainstream in a way that they never have been before. So what was it about you at, at 15, you know, in 1989 or 90 or whenever it was when yeah. you began this process? I mean, there wasn't a lot of talk about it then. Like what, what, what was going on with the 15 year old Blake that thought like, I'm gonna start journaling? Yeah, I, I think, um, I, I don't really know because my parent, neither of my parents were journalers. So I don't really got, I think most of the things that I did in my life at an early age resulted, I read a lot. And I'm sure I read a book of someone you could have been through school or whatever that talked, that was successful, that talked about journaling being mm -hmm. an important part of their process. For me also, I was a really competitive tennis player and part of my early journaling was really um, from kind of a mental, um, you know, mental practice of like really journaling about my practices or matches that I won or lost or why I think I lost them. And so it was a little bit more from an athletic bent originally. Mm -hmm. um, when I read those journals, a lot of it is around my tennis and my desire to win and mm -hmm. my frustration in matches that I lost and, you know, and these types of things. But um, I really don't know um, where, uh, what was the catalyst? I just know that it's something that kind of I've always done. Yeah. One of the things that, that I related to a lot about you growing up was your passion for tennis. I was a swimmer. I mean, I'm older than you, but the, the story is somewhat similar in that we both had this passion for this sport. We weren't the most talented, but we both figured out that we could bridge that talent deficit gap by working harder than the other guy yeah. to get to that place that we wanted to get to and how that you know informed you as an entrepreneur and perhaps continues to inform you today. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think there's a real blessing, even though it didn't feel like it when I was the last man on the team every year. Um, I think there was a blessing in um, having to, the only way to have any level of success uh, was just to outwork everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's why my favorite movie of all time is Rudy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I'm so connected with that character of wanting to be on the Notre Dame football team so bad that he would do anything. Uh, Cause that was really the mentality that I had uh, being a tennis player, which is 
been probably the greatest gift as an entrepreneur because being an entrepreneur is also and often an individual sport, um, and uh, and you have to you know work extremely hard. It can be extremely lonely, and you know the there's no certainty of the results. Same with tennis, right. you know, or swimming for you. So I think I a, a lot of what I learned, and I think was my destiny was uh, to learn that through tennis, so that it could be applied to my entrepreneurial career. Um, and and I think that was incredible preparation right. for. It. Well, you strike me as somebody who who you know has always followed his curiosity, who is unafraid to fail, who you know kind of looks at the world with wide eyes in a very optimistic way, and says, "Oh, there's a thing like I could do that." Right? Yeah. Most kids, you know, are not like that, or they don't they don't filter the world that way. So, I'm curious about how that was instilled in you. Do you think that was hardwired into you just from birth? Did that come from your parents? I mean, you, you know, you, your dad was a doctor, yeah. your mom, cookbook author, like big time cookbook. Yeah, big she time. sold like a, <laughs> over millions, a million, of millions of copies millions. of this no butter cookbook <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, who was, the, who was the mentor in the house that was, you know, instilling that in you? Well, I think, you know, have you uh, spent any time with the Enneagram? Are you familiar yes. with that? Okay. Uh -huh. So yeah. I went pretty deep in the Enneagram about two years ago. Uh -huh. And I'm a seven, the enthusiast. And I feel like- Shocker. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, I mean, that's what's so amazing about the Enneagram. It's like so dead on uh, and so convicting when you think of the, the areas in my life that challenge me the most and how it's so just like prescriptive and reading some of the great work about the Enneagram. But I bring it up because it really has convinced me that- um, there's nine types that we really do arrive here with an operating system. Mm -hmm. And you know, if we wanna get really spiritual about it, like maybe we even choose that operating system and maybe we come multiple times right. and you get to come nine times and try all the operating systems, I don't know. But I feel like I was hardwired as a seven since the beginning. And then I think then it's up to our parents to provide the software. Mm -hmm. So if the hardware was, you know, my personality type that I do believe is hardwired in, I don't think that came from my parents mm -hmm. because my brother and sister have totally different hardware, Yeah, you know? Um, but the software is what our parents teach us, our friends, our, you know, places we grow up. And that is what kind of creates the uh, uniqueness of each human. So that's the way that I, um, kind of look at nature versus nurture um, is, you know, hardware we come in with and software we get, right. and hopefully we get to continue to update our software as we go. Right, well, your your hustle game was right out of the gate, right? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. there was no, you know, no. putting a, a clamp down on that, right? No. Like from teaching tennis lessons in the neighborhood to the, um, laundry delivery service company that you created in college. Like it's just been one successive business adventure after the other. I mean, I think a lot of people look at you and they think of Tom's obviously your biggest success, but that was the product of, you know, four or five businesses that preceded it. Sure. And you know, and and what I'm working on now made for like it's totally accumulation of everything I learned from Tom's plus mm -hmm. the other businesses. So, one thing that I think is interesting about my entrepreneurial life and I say this because I've read so many books of entrepreneurs. So I didn't graduate from college, but I literally uh, don't know another human that's read more biographies of entrepreneurs uh -huh. than I have. Like I just devoured them in my 20s because that, that was the way I learned. And so I'll, most entrepreneurs 
um, especially if they've started multiple businesses, um, there's usually a pretty clear link between the businesses. Um, now, you look at my career, I was in the laundry business, the outdoor advertising business, the online driver's education business, the television network business, you know, the right. shoe philanthropy business, and now in the you know, space with Made For to help people, you know, live their best lives and reach the highest state of well-being. And so there's really no direct links between them. But what there is, if, if you and I've really spent time thinking about this, is there is a cumulative of like, I learned this, so this allowed me to apply it to this. And I learned this, and it made me apply it to this. And so, you know, now, um, definitely, you know, with having this mission of trying to help people with their mental health and their personal well-being is a derivative of what I saw mm -hmm. with Tom's and what I experienced um, in that, you know, a lot of people in developing countries, while they have very little material wealth, um, they have a lot better mental health mm -hmm. than we have here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so what are we missing that people in Uganda or Ethiopia or Venezuela, you know, in very rural areas are getting so right? Um, and that's what was kind of the question that led to um, to really going down this path and working with scientists and really trying to understand that, which led to the Made For company. So all my businesses, I think, even though they're not related per se, they all have like this kind of arc of, of curiosity and, and, and personal experience. Right. I don't want to go through Syriatum like all your businesses. Sure. I think everybody should listen to uh, how I, your episode of How I Built This with Guy Raz. It takes <laughs> you know he does a great job of taking you <laughs> yeah. through like all these iterations of things that you've done. Um, I'm more interested, and not that that's not it. It's super fascinating, and perhaps we can recount some aspects of the Tom story. But I'm interested in that inflection point when you're at the peak of your powers with Tom's mm -hmm. and you have this kind of emotional realization that all these things that you've done in some part um, to be you know, a happy person, right? Yeah. Like you're doing it of service, you're running sure. a business, you're employing all these people, um, but it's also very much an aspect of you know, these cultural drivers, these messages that we've been told our whole life, like if you wanna be happy, well, you be financially successful and you serve others and all these things and you kind of, met your maker with that a little bit in terms of, you know, really taking stock and inventory in an honest way with how you were feeling about yourself. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's looking back on it now, it's, it's such a blessing, even though it felt so challenging at the time, um, because I'm an achiever and I set my goals and write in my journal and say, this is what I wanna accomplish. and when you accomplish it, you expect to get a certain feeling. And I think um, most people in their life um, spend most of their life having these external goals and external accomplishments or um, family situations or whatnot that we have been told by society mm -hmm. is the um, will result in happiness. And um, maybe because I started early um, in my entrepreneurial life and I grew up fast, I achieved you know, pretty much everything that I set out to achieve, you know, um, before I was 40. And that to everyone and myself at the time thought like a huge blessing. Um, but what, it, what I found was, is that I 
woke up one day or a series of days and didn't really think that my future was gonna be better than my past. And that's a really scary place to be in. Mm. Um, I think that leads to a lot of mental health issues and devastating um, situations for people. And it wasn't that I didn't like my my life or my situation or my business, or I didn't, wasn't proud of what we accomplished with Tom's, but I realized that if we, anyone, and me specific in this situation, if we are looking to external accomplishments, external praise, anything, anything, even your kids love for your sense of peace and joy, ultimately you will realize that it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And that is a really scary place to mm -hmm. land. And that's that's where I landed. I had accomplished everything. I'd been on the covers of every magazine. I'd helped, you know, at that point, 80 million children get shoes. I'd made hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, I literally you know, had kids. I had everything that I possibly could have been told was the key to a, not just a happy life, but actually a meaningful life. Like mm -hmm. I, you know, it wasn't like I, you know, just chased after like the, you know, the, these hedonistic right. pleasures. And it wasn't just a, a company that was profit above everything else. Like there's such a built-in massive service aspect totally. of what you were I mean, doing, which you would think would buffer you against Yeah, you would that, think it would, you know? but actually yeah. I think it in some way it made it worse. Because, well, the guilt and the shame. Because there, right, but there, well, well, feeling well, that way. That, but also there was nowhere to go. So if you think about it, if you had a traditional businessman or woman, and they built a huge company, made a bunch of money, had all this, and they realized, ah, eh, it, it's really not what it's cracked up to be. Now they, I can be a philanthropist, philanthropist and so right. they can spend yeah. the next twenty years <laughs> yeah, doing yeah. that. But I'd already done that, right? And I realized it wasn't any better than you know. And so, so I reached a point where. Um, and there's this 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 amazing teacher who I I love named Sadguru. I don't know if you know yeah, Sadguru. Yeah, I do. Uh -huh. But we got to spend some time together. We have a very shared passion for golf, mm -hmm. and we've golfed together. And he's stayed at my house in Wyoming, and 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 he said that in the uh, in the Yoga Sutras, there's um, this one book, and I forget which one it is. But the very first line is, "And now yoga." And what that meant to him, as he explained, because he knows quite a bit about my life story, is that moment was when my yoga really started. Mm. It was I had to accomplish all those things. I had to do all of that in my life to realize that the joy and the peace and the sense of connection to the great mystery that I've been searching for would never be found in those external things. And that's when I could start my yoga practice. Yeah, and so to, that's to reframe it as an opportunity, <laughs> yeah. but ultimately to have to basically experience all of that on the grandest level in order to understand fully that it isn't the solution, right? Because yeah. anybody who's listening or watching, yeah. like, you know, myself you. included, yeah, there's a little <laughs> bit of that, but there's also like, yeah, maybe he says that, but you know, that's not going to be the way it is for me, right? Sure. And it's like it doesn't matter how many successful people you know sit across from me and tell me you know their version of that exact same story sure. it always holds true right yeah. and yet it's so difficult to wrap the human mind around that like how could that possibly be true because it's so contrary to everything that we've been hardwired to believe since as long as we can remember totally i mean i actually had a very um prophetic conversation where i was told this was going to happen and it was by ted turner 
Uh-huh. So I looked up to Ted Turner a lot as an entrepreneur. As I said, I read all every biography and there's a few great ones on Ted Turner. And Ted Turner had some similarities with me. You know, he started an outdoor advertising mm-hmm. company before starting CNN, started t- Network. Uh, I, I lived on a sailboat for six years. Ted Turner's a huge uh-huh. sailor, won America's Cup. Started, so, a, started a cable TV <laughs> channel. Started yeah. CNN. Um, so I um, was asked to interview Ted Turner um, maybe seven or eight years ago at the UN. Um, and uh, I got to spend the morning with Ted Turner. And mm-hmm. He was a real hero to me. So like this was a really special experience. And so I spent, you know, just months preparing for this interview and read every book again and, you know, was really excited to do this interview with Ted. But right before we went on stage, we're having this conversation and Ted said to me, he said, you know, we're talking about life. And he said, you know, in in life and in business, especially in business, you know, it's like this ladder and it's not like the corporate ladder like you're about, but it's like this ladder of like believing that if you climb up this ladder, that at the top, there's something magical and something that's going to give you everything that you've ever wanted. And, mm-hmm. and as you start to climb the ladder, you see this beautiful bag on the top of the ladder. Mm-hmm. And you can only think what's in the bag when you get to the top. And he said, I spent so much of my life climbing that ladder to get a peek into mm-hmm. that bag. And he says, and I've seen inside the bag. And of course, at this age, I was like maybe, I don't know, I was 38, 40 years yeah. old, I said, what's in the bag? And he goes, I'll tell you what's in the bag. The bag is empty. And even though I've told you, you still need to climb the ladder right. and look for yourself. <laughs> yeah. He knows well enough to know that just him telling you that yeah. ain't gonna do it. And I'll never forget that conversation with Ted. I mean, it was one of the most beautiful life, like when we watch the, the, the movie of our lives, it will definitely be in the highlight reel of my life. Uh-huh. Because he told me, he said, "You're." I he saw me, he saw himself probably in me, and saw exactly the path I was on, and uh, wanted to tell me, but also wanted to tell me that I still had to go down the path. Right. So, so was there a specific moment where it dawned upon you, or was it a kind of a slow realization? Slow realization. And did you pick up the phone and call Ted and tell him, <laughs> no. I've, "I've arrived. <laughs> I've arrived. And the now bag what? is indeed not not full. <laughs> it's not full." Um, no, it was really more of a slow um, process. And I think that in, in a lot of life transformations, I think happens, um, you know, kind of over time, you know, I think things just start losing their luster. You start losing a little bit of excitement or energy mm-hmm. around things. You start realizing that something's a little bit more shallow than you, than you realized before. Um, and and cum- over the cumulative effect, you start just to energetically wake up and not have that same passion and enthusiasm and optimism that you built your life around. And that that can be a, a pretty scary place. Um, so yeah, it was, it was over time, over about two year period of time mm-hmm. for me. Well, the thing that you have though, that I think separates you from, from other people who've, who've been in that place is this seeker disposition. Totally. Like you're, you know, from reading you know, business, entrepreneurial, and self-help books as a young person, like you strike me as somebody who's always looking to grow all yeah. the time, right? Spiritually, emotionally, mentally, like there's a firm commitment there, firm. right? No yeah. matter what, like you're always exploring these different and new modalities. Um, and I and I have to suspect that that's been a saving grace, like to keep you on this, you know, journey of for self-improvement sure. no matter what. Cause it's rare, it would, the typical arc for somebody like yourself, like setting aside the one for one model of Tom's would be, you know, make all your bank, 
yeah, you have this existential crisis, but you ultimately never really reckon with it or grapple with sure. it. And you just end up playing a bunch of golf and giving a bunch of money away. Yeah, I mean, that's really, and there's 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 no judgment in that. And oftentimes people might have their external goals, whether they're financial or otherwise met, you know, later in life in their 60s mm -hmm. or their 70s. And then they can kind of coast on the golf course or wherever their hobby of choice is uh, into old age and enjoy being grandparents and all these other things that are out there that satisfy them. Um, but when it happens to you at age 40, uh, you're in a different position. And so I think I am very grateful that I have this seeker disposition uh, that I'm insanely curious. Uh, and I really believe that you can um, kind of work through any uh, situation that you're that you're in. And so it really led me to go down the path of, um, okay, there are a lot of people in the world that are thriving. And what are they doing that I'm not doing? Mm -hmm. Because I did everything that society told me to do. I did everything that my parents told me to do. Like, I think I've really got an A plus on, on all these things and I feel like this, but not everyone feels like this. And yeah. there's some people that have gone through what I've gone through and are thriving. And there's some people that haven't had to reach any of those external accomplishments and they're thriving. So wh what are, who are these people and what are they doing that I'm not doing? And that led me down, you know, working with, you know, many different scientists that study human behavior, top universities in the country. It led me to seeking out people like Sadhguru and other, you know, spiritual teachers like Rob Bell. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it really led me down a path of really talking to the widest net of people from scientists to shamans to, you know, um, going down to South America and having plant medicine journeys. I mean, I was willing to try anything. Mm -hmm. um, but what I found, and it's no, it's, it, I, I don't, I think it's, um, it's no surprise that it ultimately led to something that then led to another entrepreneurial venture. Right. And of course. It, you know, so it's like, <laughs> it's like obvious. I mean, that's uh -huh. what's going to happen. I feel like I'm so predictable at this point. Um, but, but it did because what happened, I realized was the thing, the, the, the things that were holding me back was not paying attention to the little things in my life, the internal things. I was so externally focused that I wasn't really taking care of myself, mm -hmm. um, not just in some of the traditional self-care ways that you know, we, we, we kind of spoke about in the beginning, but some very specific practices that there have been, you know, you know, kind of double placebo studies at universities show have a benefit on how, you know, people's energy levels are, how their sleep is, or their, you know, kind of mental outlook of the future being better than the past. And so um, what I found was, even though I tried so many different things and met with so many different people, the, the, what made the biggest difference was actually working on the simplest things. And just like really dialing in some simple things like the power of my breath or spending time in nature and why that's important for my brain or ch you know how your mindset can change through neuroplasticity. And that's those little simple things that I worked on is what had the biggest effect. And over time is that really started to kind of give me and ground me in feeling like I was more in control with how I woke up and felt every day. Mm -hmm. That's what led to, and I think that's where my, a, the disposition of, of, of that I had that 
caused me to start Tom's like, okay, how can I help as many people learn mm -hmm. this too? Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of people, I mean, out there suffering. I mean, you can read any headline in the news now and you see that we have more people on antidepressants than ever in the history of America. You know, more people taking sleep aids just to get a night's sleep. I mean, we are as a society suffering and having experienced some of that suffering really motivated me to, you know, want to do something to help people not have that, you know, suffering is not necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we're not in a great place with mental health, physical health across the board. Here we are the day after the election. Oh, Anxiety rates are like, <laughs> you know, off the charts at, you know, historic levels, of course. Um, and I want to get into all these modalities, but I think a thought that I had was beneath the success and the admitted uh, drive for external validation that's that's been a hallmark of you in the past, there has to still be this undercurrent of humility in order to be that seeker because you're not gonna seek out Rob Bell or Satguru. You're not gonna be on the on the on the path to, you know, sitting at the feet of wise people to hear what they have to say unless you enter that equation from a place of humility, this sure. place of like, I have more to learn. Like these people seem to know something that I don't, like let me allow myself to be open to what they have to say. Yeah, I think maybe that's, you know, maybe comes back from being an athlete and always like having so much respect for your coaches, mm -hmm. you know, and like really, really at an early age seeing that, you know, no matter what, if you're the best player in the world, you know, when I was growing up, it was Andre Agassi, you know, he still had coach. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you yeah, know, yeah. does it, I mean, coaches, I've had a life coach for 14 years. And it's weird that most people don't, like, we understand that, like, how are you going to be a great athlete if you don't have a coach? Yeah. But we don't think of that in any other context of life. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, you know, I don't think therapists and life coaches get near the respect or the are held up with enough importance mm -hmm. in our society because mm -hmm. I think being a human, uh, we need coaches and, yeah. and they, they take many different forms and everyone can choose their own based on their spiritual beliefs or their, you know, um, their life situations. But for me, I've always been oriented and it's part of the seeker mentality of like, who, who knows, who's experienced this, who knows this, who could coach me on this? Who could give me a perspective right. I don't have? And um, and I'm really grateful that I've had that mentality. And I think it, you know, um, it does. You know, the word humility is one that I think is always uh, an interesting one because people who say they're humble <laughs> that's like an oxymoron, <laughs> yeah. right? If you're saying it, <laughs> yeah. you're you're performing so, on some exactly. level, and that's coming right. from a place of ego. Yeah. So I yeah. think I always, but I do think it's fair in this situation to say that at least from a disposition is I approach my challenges with humility based on the fact that I know there is someone who has studied this situation or been in this situation and can provide some real uh, value. Right. And, and I'm really grateful for all the people that have been, you know, mentors and coaches and, and, and therapists and people who've helped me on this journey because being a human is not easy. Certainly is not. <laughs> One of the modalities that I know you're passionate about, and I know you talked with Tim Ferriss about this recently, is the Hoffman process. Oh, yes. And I, I do wanna get into this a little bit. Great. Do you I'm know fascinated. about it? I know about it. I've never done it myself. Okay. Do you know Neil Strauss? Yeah, yes, yes. So Neil's 
constantly telling me I have to do the, the Hoffman process. And yeah. I know that I would glean so oh. much, but he's like, when are you gonna go? April when are you went. gonna go? April she, went after yeah. our medicine wheel. I was like, look, you gave a gift to me. Uh-huh. I was like, I'm gonna give the gift to Hoffman to you. And she went. Right. So if the shaman's going, uh, you know, um, clearly um, everyone there's can- There's some gold benefit. there. Yeah. Right. Um, no, it's, 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 I say to people, it's like, I, I think it's like the, the, if, if, if we got a heart, going back to the, the analogy of, of we come in with an operating system, we get software, like I think Hoffman is like getting all the bugs out of your mm. software. Like every software program is gonna have glitches and bugs and, it, and, and, and we all have parents and we all have life experiences and we all have our own versions of traumas and things that you know really um, create patterns in our lives. And Hoffman, is an unbelievable experience. I use the word experience, they say process, but it really is an experiential um, you know, seven days where you really start to understand why the heck you are the way you are. And no judgment, good or bad, uh-huh. but knowing why and, and which of your patterns and which of your um, you know, ways of being or responses that are so automatic at this stage and hardwired into your brain, which of them are serving you and which of them aren't. And then they have incredible ways to rewire yourself to let go of the things that aren't serving you. Um, my favorite Hoffman story is, and I, I don't think I've shared this with it, um, is, um, is that I lost 20 pounds after Hoffman. Uh-huh. Now I wasn't like heavily overweight. I was like I'm like 165 now. I was probably like 185, and that was kind of a normal weight. Um, and uh, and I literally was carrying 20 pounds of stress, mm-hmm. 20 pounds of un you know things that I had never worked through from my childhood. Um, you know, and and so Hoffman would never say that they. It's would, not a weight. Loss it's not thing, a weight loss but, thing. But by by having your hormones dysregulated, it's it's you know keeping you heavier than you normally would. Yeah, be. Yeah, I right? mean I don't yeah. know the science behind that, but it's like it's just there's the correlations is, is exactly to that timetable. <laughs> um, but and I bring that up just because it's like Hoffman has kind of a magical effect on pretty much everyone I know that's ever gone, and people do become almost evangelical about it that have gone, like right. we've seen like with Neil. Neil. Yeah, um, because it's just so liberating. I mean, it's just like you want every human to be able to live with this awareness and this freedom that you get through understanding how you got to where you are. But a lot of it is, correct me if I'm wrong, about like early imprinting, yes. like in your youth, right? Totally. And yeah. and the kind of messages that you're receiving as a young person from your parents, and how those you know really become part of that. Um, it, you know, it's somewhere in between software and hardware, yeah. really, right? Yeah. Because it becomes so entrenched in you that it really is your hardware at some point. At some point, yeah. I mean, because I, I would say the thing is, is they talk about this thing called the negative love syndrome, and so basically they say as children from like age, you know, basically up until age twelve, um, is you know you all you need to survive and all you want is love or attention from your parents. And so everything that you do or learn to do is either doing something that's mirroring your Mm -hmm. parents' behaviors and patterns to get their love or is the exact opposite of your parents to get their attention. Mm -hmm. And so you can literally trace back 
all of and they help you understand these patterns that are basically becoming your software and you can trace back to which parent or caretaker if you had a grandmother or someone that was really mm-hmm. involved and you can actually trace back to them either doing the same thing or the exact opposite thing right and it's fascinating because then once you start to see your personality and your life experience as a collection of these patterns then you realize how unconscious you are and how you're living your life. Mm-hmm. And and that is can be frightening, but also incredibly en- en- enlightening to people because then you have the choice to choose. Do you want to continue to live in this unconscious way and just responding to things based on what you patterned you right. as a kid? Or do you want to um, use these practices to disrupt those patterns and mm-hmm. then choose a different path? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's... It's so in your case, so what was what would be an example of an epiphany that you've had as a result of undergoing this? I mean, one of the ones that's the most silly and and kind of embarrassing, um, which I think is why I like to share it, is my mom. I was the first child, and I was also the first grandchild. And my mom was a housewife before she wrote her cookbooks. And you know, um, when I came around, I was her pride and joy. I mean, I was like literally the center of attention, like no one's been the center mm. of attention because my grand, I was the first grandkid. I was the first child. I was, I mean, I was, and so my mom's whole sense of self for a number of years really revolved around this baby and then this young kid. And I felt that in a big way. And it continued on even once I had brothers and sisters. And so my earliest experiences with women, uh, specifically, um, and my mom, was um, I am re- feel really good when I'm the center of attention. Uh-huh. And so um, it's, it's, you start looking at some of my life choices, yeah. and they've all been to get more attention. Yeah. You know? And I mean, even, even some of the really pure philanthropic stuff is like, well, that gets more positive attention. Right. And, and so- <laughs> It's amazing you didn't become an actor, but you did do the reality TV yeah. thing. So yeah. I guess in certain respects you did. In some ways, right? But, but, what, but was, this is the fascinating thing is, okay, it's one thing to say, okay, like I understand where my deep need and comfort for attention is, but where is that holding me back? Where is that causing me to not feel authentic in my life and then creating some um, some negative emotions in mm-hmm. my life? And so it wasn't like looking back at like, oh, some of the career choices, those are so obvious now if I'm someone who is starving for attention all the time. But then it was something like really simple. And this is why I, I just, I, in a meditation of Hoffman, I realized I love to go snowboarding. And I realized that on ski lifts, you know, you have three or four people in the lift, you have 15 minutes on the lift, that my need for attention was so great, this is embarrassing, but it's funny, is that I would always manipulate the conversation on a ski lift to ultimately, so someone had to ask me what I did for a living, so I could say I started Tom, so they could tell Uh me how great I was. (laughs) (laughs) Every ski lift is the same damn conversation. Uh And it was so embarrassing to realize that my little boy in me still needed the attention so much, no matter how much success I've had. It doesn't matter how many magazine covers, you still still have to get the woman from Nebraska to say, so what do you do to be in Jackson Hole? Uh Oh, I, you know, 
And so once I realized that, it was so liberating because I stopped doing it. I was like, I don't need it. It's not, it's not serving me anymore. Mm. This is like limiting me from really learning about this person that could be like the most fascinating person in the world or have a great message for me because I'm so focused on needing my own attention. And it's created so much more real um, intimacy in meeting with strangers. It's created more comfort at, at parties. Like I don't, like I actually play a game with myself now where I try to like in a new environment, see if I can get through the entire night with no one knowing anything about my mm. professional life. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they learn things about me, about my kids. They learn things about, about my hobbies. But it, but it really was, I mean, that's a long drawn out way to say one thing I learned, but that's the level of kind of the root of things you get to. And then when you realize them and you kind of can laugh at them and look at them without any judgment, which is what Hoffman really allows you to do, then you can be free from them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the most powerful aspect of the story you just told. Like as, as funny as it is, the way in which you can kind of own it completely without that pang of shame or embarrassment, yeah. There is a freedom in that. Total like you freedom. can, you and that's, I think that that's totally related to like the weight loss thing. You're shedding that burden on yourself. So yeah. you're able to carry yourself in a lighter way, a more clear eyed way where you can be present with people and not be in that like need, neediness, you know, kind of dynamic that basically is completely, uh, you know, perverse and not authentic to who you truly are, like that oh. inner child within. That's right, when you walked up today, your t-shirt for those who can't see you says truth on it. And it was so like divine that you were in that t-shirt mm. because it is so much, I think part of this journey for me has been to look at myself and look at everything with no judgment so that I can live not just the most truthful life, but like truth to myself. And that's when I feel like we really get this sense of, just lightness. Yeah. When there's there is no judge. Everything happens for a reason, and you make decisions, good or bad, judged by society. But it's it's. I don't believe that there's that any of it has come from a bad place. But I think when you do this inner work and things like Hoffman, you start to put the pieces together, and then you be like, oh, like I could beat myself up for being like always having to be the center of attention, and what a horrible characteristic that is, and no one wants to be around someone like that. Or yeah. I can be like no, I'm just a little boy who that's all they knew growing up. Mm. And so when they got out to be a big boy, they just had to keep playing the same role, but I don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. It's also not about vilifying your parents. Like, totally not. You know what I mean? Like no, they, my mom they was do amazing. They do. <laughs> right. So, and, but that, that's that been like a, a thing with me. Or like I, I'm, I have fear of, of engaging with that process because I don't want to cast dispersions on my parents, but ultimately, that blinds me from the relief that I could receive by working through these things, right? I mean, I'm a I'm a product of 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 twelve step. Like, you know, I've been sober a long time, so my entry point to any kind of tools whatsoever is the process of like, you know, performing the inventory, yeah. which reveals, you know, it's similar in that it reveals these character traits that you have that that you know tend to recur in your life and and lead you down dark pathways and there's a self-awareness that comes with that and then you get into the amends process but there's so much work that still remains to be done you know mm-hmm. I'll never forget 
sitting across from, I had Gabor Mate on the podcast mm, and he starts, yeah. you know, I'd, I knew he would do this and I allowed him to do it, but for him to like kind of flip it and just start, he's starting asking me questions about my parents. And it's like, you know, to him, it's crystal clear, like why I'm behaving the way I'm behaving, <laughs> yeah, sure. you know? And it's like, there's so much to learn and to be gained by, um, by not being afraid of, of, you know, availing yourself of all these interesting modalities. So I think, you know, I, at, at some point I will do the Hoffman process. Yeah. And it's not like, you're not gonna reveal what actually happens. It's like you go to this place and you undergo this experience that is very, you know, tact- tactile, oh, right? It it's not about it's reading proven. a book or a work yeah. or like, oh, you, know, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, thing. Yeah, so yeah. it's a fun experience. Right. I mean, like there are challenging times, but there's mm-hmm. some really fun times too that, you know, us as adults don't get the opportunity to engage in and, and modalities and ways that you do that. And so it's very, I always say it's very experiential. Um, and, and I do think there are many of my friends who have hesitated. Most of them have all gone now because um, I'm quite persuasive in that regard. Uh-huh. But some of them were the ones that had great relationships with their parents. Like, oh, I don't want to go and vilify my parents. I'm like, look, I had an amazing childhood. I'm still incredibly close to my parents. And like everything that I learned that I learned from them of patterns that I don't want to keep anymore, many of them came from just, you know, the way that they loved me. There was nothing wrong with it. It just has, there's a cause and effect for every way. Right. And and I think what I've also um, found it to be incredibly helpful uh, and, and I go back to probably more than ever is how I parent my kids. Because I'm realizing, you know, no matter how good or how involved or how I'm trying to do, there are um, responses that I'm creating, mm. even if uh, they're unintended. And I am never going to do it perfect. And I already have a spot for all my kids at age 21 to go to Hoffman, <laughs> already prepaid. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, but, um, and I probably be the, the week after their Hoffman's, I'll learn more about myself than I've ever learned. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, like it's a, a really great tool to have that awareness of how there are unintended consequences, even for the best right. motivations. Right. Um, well, let's talk about made for. Sure. So you have this occurrence in your life where you're feeling depressed and not sure what the next thing is. You're grappling with you know, meaning in your life. How does that ultimately translate into this new venture? Well, it's, it's fun because, you know, I, as I've said, and when we started our conversation talking about a shaman, so I think this is like the perfect segue yeah. into how this happened. You know, I um, my first response to dealing with my depression and and kind of you know lack of positive outlook for the first time in my life, which was you know really intense for me because I'm such a positive person, was to go the super spiritual, super supernatural way. So it was shamans, it was plant right. medicine journeys, it was you know vipassana meditation retreats. I mean, it was that. And uh, there was a lot of insights and stuff that I gained from all of that experiences. Um, but I met uh, a guy who's now my business partner uh, at Made For. His name is Pat Dossett. And uh, we met through mutual friends. And he was a Navy SEAL for nine years. Mm-hmm. And he uh, 
thinks probably like you would stereotypically think Navy SEALs think. He's very methodical, science only, no foo-foo, no fads, no bullshit. I mean, this guy is like- (laughs) It's a shaman-free zone (laughs) with this guy. guy, (laughs) You're gonna use the word shaman in the room with that. And uh, I met him and we were on Uh a surf trip together. And uh, we were talking about kind of what I was going through, what I was doing and, and what his personal interests are. And, um, and he shared that, you know, if I asked this question to him and several others because I was also thinking in this way. I was like, if you guys didn't have to work for money and you could do anything you wanted to do with your life, what would you do? Like mm. anything. And Pat gave an answer that was very much in line with kind of what I was seeking. And that it was, you know, I would help um, everyday people live their best lives by getting access to the information and the science that very few people get except Navy SEALs and top performers. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's that's amazing. Like I, that's kind of, you know, one of the, that's kind of something I would love to understand as well. And so over a series of surf sessions and, and lunches on the boat, we talked about that there is um, an incredible growing body of knowledge in the scientific community of, you know, um, practices and habits that everyday people could to partake in and it would make a real you know uh, difference in their lives. And Pat, um, you know, was very interested in taking an approach that was very different than mine, which was really interviewing scientists and getting them um, to share what they've learned and what they've been able to prove mm-hmm. in terms of human behavior. And so I said, I think this sounds great. So I was like, Pat, like Pat was working for Google at the time. I was like, if you you know, would be open to leaving Google and pursuing this full time, I would fund it almost like a research project um, and some of it for my own benefit because of the place that I was in. And we agreed to start working on it as a project. Um, That's another thing, a lot of businesses, I mean, Tom's wasn't a business, it was a project for a while. Um, And so the Made For was a project. And, um, And, you know, shortly into Pat starting to kind of kick the tires about, okay, what are some of the practices that are most uh, prevalent in high performers and people who are living in a high state of well-being? He met um, Andrew Huberman, who you, I uh, right. you just had on the show, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so and he met Andrew at Hoffman. Oh, he did. Yes, he oh, all comes wow. back to Hoffman. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah. I didn't know that part. Yes, That's yes, crazy. yes. So Pat went to Hoffman after I talked so great about it. And then um, if you've been to Hoffman, you can go back on the graduation night for any class. Mm. And we had a friend graduating. And so Pat went to support him and Andrew was graduating and they sat next chair at dinner. Wow. So that's how that amazing. Wow. Uh, and so um, Andrew has a, uh, a lab at Stanford that is a, and he's a neuroscientist for people who didn't hear that podcast uh, that you had him on. And uh, Pat started telling Andrew about what we we're doing and Andrew just lit up. Mm. Andrew was like, this is exactly what we need. Like we, mm. us scientists get so frustrated that we spend all of our lives, you know, proving things that could really benefit humanity, but we don't have a delivery mechanism that gets out there unless we write a right. book or write a paper or this or that. And Pat and I were much more interested in um, teaching people in a experiential way versus writing a book or yeah. hosting a podcast or whatever we could do at that point. And so Andrew uh, signed on to join us um, and he said, okay, let's identify, um, originally we were going for 12, going back to 12 steps or 12 habits or 12 months of the year. We're looking for 12 things 
that could transform someone's life. Mm -hmm. 12 either habits or daily practices um, that have been proven by the scientific community to make a demonstrative difference. And working with Andrew and him introducing us to other scientists and specialties, everything from, you know, sleeping to nutrition to, um, you know, breath techniques, we found that we could only find 10 things. So um, we ultimately create a program, it's called Made For, uh, that is a 10-month program where each month uh, we send you a kit and in that kit comes in your in the mail. You can have everything you need to learn the new habit or practice for thirty days, and and the 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 kind of um, thinking behind teaching people this way versus you know using a digital app or a website or any other modality was what we recognized was in this time period in our life. We are so digitally distracted. Uh, we have so much information. It's mm -hmm. not that we don't have the information, but we very we find it very hard to carve out the space to really um, experience deep learning. And in order for deep learning to happen, you need to have something you do consistently without distraction. And so the Made For program is completely analog. There's no digital app or application. And it requires, you know, a little bit of effort, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day for 30 days to learn or to experience this, this habit or practice that can make a difference in your life. And so um, we have a a different scientist and different kind of university or lab partnered with mm -hmm. each of the months, um, and uh, and and it was you know basically a derivative of the ten things that I found right. made the biggest difference for me. Yeah, I love that it's analog. <laughs> um, not that there aren't powerful digital tools that sure. are available to people, but when you kind of canvas that space, I mean, we're in the age of like people trying to connect with their wellness in a meaningful way. And there are a lot of very, you know, well-developed, helpful apps out there, but they tend to pick a lane. Like this is mindfulness, this is meditation, this is, you know, sleep, this is a fitness tracker, but there isn't anything that looks at this holistically and even more specifically, from the perspective of how you actually change a habit, yeah. right? Like if you can be on all these apps, but if you're lacking tools for how to actually make a habit stick, you're not gonna reap the benefits of, of any of it, right? And so I think it's really smart and interesting that you would go the neuroplasticity route and really analyze like, how do you actually get somebody to adopt a new habit with staying power? And that comes through tiny actions taken consistently, you know, that have staying power only through repetition, right? Yeah. And breaking things down into their smallest little pieces seems to be the consensus about how we do this. You're either an all in person, you know, I'm kind of that way, yeah, but I'm most people are way. not that yeah. way, you know? Yeah. Um, so if you read, you know, Charles Duhigg's work yeah. or, or James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, like they all kind of say the same thing, which is like, you gotta start with these tiny little things. And the problem is it's not sexy. No. It's not like I'm gonna run an ultra marathon in a week. You know, it's, it's really like these tiny little things that no one gives a shit about and don't look good on Instagram. Totally, and that's why as a business, it can be quite challenging because we, and especially with having a business partner like Pat, who's like no bullshit, like all of our marketing and all of our explanations of what we're gonna help you with sound really boring. Mm -hmm. Cause it's like, we're- it's, You're gonna drink water. You're gonna drink you know, water. Every two hours or something <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, like, I mean, we're gonna talk about hydration. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about the water is, is the first step in getting people to really make a sustained change is convincing them that, that they're the type of person that can make a sustained change. Even if they have the desire 
there all the the mindset that most of us have, especially if we're adults, you know, age over twenty five years old, uh, is I am the way that I am, mm-hmm. and and I've tried everything, or you know, this doesn't stick. And so we actually start with hydration because a it's one of the most important uh, you know aspects of how our bodies operate, and there's incredible amount of science behind you know the negative effects of even a small amount of dehydration, which a huge amount of Americans are experiencing every day. So we start with something that we know is going to have a physiological impact almost immediately, unless you already have an incredible hydration practice, which most people don't, even if they think they do. Um, and the second thing is it's so simple. Like you, we have a very special water bottle that you get in your kit. It keeps track of how much water you drink throughout the day. It has a tactile kind of reward system with these like prayer beads that mm. you move every time you finish a bottle mm. so you get that dopamine hit You're every like time you do it. gamifying a little Gamifying a little bit, yeah. A little bit, yeah. And so, but what the beautiful thing about that is, is it's something so simple, but almost everyone immediately experiences two things. One, they experience the physiological benefit of being more more hydrated, but the more important thing they experience is, I actually stuck to something for 30 days. Mm -hmm. I accomplished something. It was simple, it was water, but I can't wait to see what month two is because I have positive momentum and my mindset is now not one of a fixed mindset, but of a growth mindset. And Carol Dweck wrote a great book about that. Yeah, so the story changes from, you don't understand, like I don't do that kind of stuff. I'm not the kind of person that does these things. I don't like that. To a value shift where by undergoing, you know, the first of 10 of these, you start to tweak the brain into believing like, I'm the kind of person who makes positive changes in my life. And the cascading like downstream impact of that is the most powerful thing of all. It's less about the water and it's more about like that shift in self-awareness and that change in the story you tell yourself about who you are and what you're capable of. For for people who've seen the movie Karate Kid, this is my favorite analogy is, you know, when Mr. Miyagi uh, is teaching, uh, you know, Ralph, uh, the karate chop, he has him washing his cars. Wax on, wax, wax on, off. wax off. And Ralph is so frustrated. He's like, this is boring. I don't understand why I'm doing this. And then there's that great moment in the movie when he immediately sees that the wax on is the, the great blocking of the mm. karate chop. And that is a lot of what we have found with these practices of made for us. These are basic, simple things that we're gonna have someone do. And the reason they're basic and simple is because they're easy to stick to. So we set you up for success by not asking you to do Herculean things each month. They're things that you know anyone can do regardless of the time that they have available. We are very busy. And so the nice thing about these are is you understand because in the kit also comes a you know 15, 20 minute read on the science behind why you're doing what you're doing. So you understand where you're going and what, what the benefits will be by accomplishing the challenge that month. But some of them are a little bit like the, the waxing on, wax off, where you're mm. kind of like, oh, I'm drinking water, I'm drinking water. And then at the end, by some prompts that we give you, we realize, oh no, what I really was doing was changing the neuroplasticity in my mind to tell myself that I can stick to something for 50, you know, every day. Uh-huh. And so when the next challenge comes, I'm gonna be more likely to accomplish it, even if it seems a little harder in the beginning, because I've built this, this change in my growth mindset. And so ultimately the, 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 the biggest reward of starting Made For for me, and I think Pat would probably say the same and Andrew would be is, we get the most amazing testimonials from people that have had transformations that have nothing to do with our program. 
Like we don't have, I mean, mm -hmm. like, you know, like that is the thing that's so cool is that people say, I've always wanted to do this in my life and now I just did it. Or I had this really challenging um, relationship with my mother-in-law that I've been avoiding for 20 years and I fixed it. Or, and people have lost weight and weight loss isn't part of our program. It's, you know, it's amazing. The, what I'd say is what has happened is when people do these other things and you know they optimize their sleep through the program or you know they heal relationships or have a gratitude practice the all these things mm -hmm. that we've all kind of heard of but when they do them in the systematic way what they ultimately do is change their mindset and whatever they do with changing their mindset just always astonishes me because I'm like we never thought about that when mm -hmm. we were designing this program and, and that's what's been the most rewarding is we had these great Zoom calls with members and we just chat and hear right. what they're going through. And it reminds me of the early days of Tom's being on the ground giving shoes and seeing the joy in these kids' faces because, you know, someone who's gone through a hard time and has faced something challenging, whether it was depression for me or the loss of a loved one or loss of a job, and then being able to grab onto something like the Made For program and make a change, like there's just nothing better. Like yeah. it's the coolest thing to hear these uh, experiences that our members have had. And it's pretty new, right? Like you yeah. launched it pretty recently. So you're in kind of like a beta test mode with like a smaller group of people or what do you have well, like we, a couple thousand people doing this? Yeah, so we started actually, um, so almost, I guess it was two years ago or a year and a half ago, we finished the program and we did a formal beta people, beta test of a thousand people. Mm -hmm. And they were friends, family. We did some, you know, kind of random advertising on Facebook to get some diversity in the in the beta group. And we had a thousand people do the beta group and we refined the program a lot during that time. We officially launched to the public on March 4th, like a few days before COVID hit. And uh, it was it was a fascinating time to launch. I mean, it was it was really hard from a business perspective because we had all this media and stuff planned to mm. share what mm -hmm. we were doing, um, which all of that got squashed for several months because of the news cycle so focused on COVID. But what was great about it was I think the you know thousand people that signed up those two months that did get the information through Instagram or whatever we had means of reaching people, they have become our greatest advocates because during a time of COVID when there's so much uncertainty, so much you know feeling of loss, so much change, so much fear, they were able to ground themselves each month in whatever they were learning and made practice, for. Yeah. And so we've actually seen kind of opposite of our projections where it started off slow and then it's just had this hockey stick growth. And I think we have 5,000 people going through the program right That's now. Cool. And, um, and it's all been through this kind of people sharing their experiences. It's almost all referral mm. in that regard. And uh, and it's been really cool that, to see that it has been uh, something that people have really um, benefited during this challenging time of COVID. So what is the process of, of bringing someone like Andrew Huberman in and like what what kind of impact does he have? Like, it's one thing to say, okay, we wanna take these people through a 30 day challenge. There's nothing, there's nothing unique or new about that. Sure. So where does the neuroscience come into play in terms of, you know, you, I, I would suspect like when you're gamifying the drinking, like those are all little little tweaks, exactly. you know, that I, I can see that being a Huberman touch, right? <laughs> totally. Like this, is, this is the thing that, differentiates it and makes it compelling to the to the reptilian brain. Yes, so I think a big part of what Pat and Andrew specifically really connected on was really 
Andrew's understanding of how the brain works and how habits are formed mm. from a neuroscience perspective. And so things like moving the bead every time you drink the water, not only is your body feeling better because it's hydrated, but but Andrew was, you know, was able to show us how like gamifying it in that way creates this dopamine. It's hit. so amazing because it seems so silly. It's it seems silly. so dumb, right? Yeah. yeah but, but like our brains you know, <laughs> really, just love it. We're simple, yeah. simple <laughs> folks. Um, you know, other things are, you know, like, you know, in the month about sleep, um, you know, one of the absolute worst things for sleep has nothing to do with how you go to sleep really, but how you wake up. And that is people using their phone for their alarm clock. Because what happens is even if you say, oh, I only use my phone for my alarm clock, mm -hmm. what really happens, and they have lots of studies to show this, is that when someone wakes up and they push the button to turn off their alarm, they see a notification, they see a text, they see an email pop up from their boss, immediately their cortisol level just spikes. And so any opportunity for them to enter the day with, Calmness and 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 encourage and engage in a mindfulness mm -hmm. practice, whatever that is, um, is gone. If and so, really understanding things like why that cortisol spike happens when you see something that is right. stressing, and then how to intervene. And so, one of the things that you get, you know, in the sleep month is we give you an old-fashioned alarm clock, and we say for uh -huh. thirty days, try not putting your phone in your bed and see. A, do you? fall asleep better because you're not looking at stressful things or uh -huh. scoring the internet or last night looking at the election polls all night long. Um, and then B, when you wake up, you don't have that initial strike of cortisol because you're not seeing something that can right. be stressful. Right. And so it's things like that that you start hacking when you have someone like Andrew who looks at what is actually happening with all these little mundane mm -hmm. behaviors that we humans do. And there's a lot more going on than we realize. Right. Well, hydration and sleep, you know, it's easy to kind of grok what the tasks are gonna be. But yeah. among these 10 habits, you also have vision, clarity, nature, breath, movement. Like what do those look like? like yeah. What does is, what is clarity look like or vision? Yeah, so, so that's really about, and that, you know, in some ways, um, goes back to the over decade that I've worked with this life coach out of Vancouver, Dave Phillips. Um, you know, Dave really helps, mainly works with CEOs and, and, and entrepreneurs, but he helps all people uh, that he works with really understand how your, um, your vision for your life um, and the level of specificity you have with it has such an effect on how you spend your life. And how you spend your life affects your levels of stress and, and mm -hmm. feelings of happiness or whatnot. And so I spoke at the earlier part about how like I really feel that I manifest a lot of my life through my journals. Um, but if you take that to a step further is when you look at what your um, goals of your life is and have clarity around that, then you also recognize, okay, if these are my goals, this is what I want to accomplish, this is what I want to experience, well, then I got to serve these roles. So maybe my goals are you know, this, but my roles are I'm a dad, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an athlete. And then if I want to achieve these goals through these roles, I have to there's tasks that I have mm -hmm. to do. I have to spend time with my kids, I have to pick them up from school. I have to be there for family dinner. So then those start to inform your calendar. And our calendars are most sacred thing uh, in terms of really being the predictor of a lot of our well-being. And so in this month, we really work with Dave and in, in a process that he's developed to help you really understand, you know, 
how are you really spending your time? And is that really benefiting you in the way that you think it is? Mm. And it really is by looking at different aspects of, you know, having these, um, having these, uh, you know, clear goals, having these clear um, kind of, uh, you know, kind of vision and mission statements in your life that really can be your North Star and guide you so that you can make better decisions mm -hmm. that, that, that are not just reactive decisions on what the day brings you, but that are ultimately connected to a vision and having this clarity around what that vision is. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. The clarity piece is tough though, like to bring it back to, the Hoffman example, yeah. if your behavior is being motivated or triggered by subconscious impulses that you're not consciously aware of, then your instincts and your intuition about what you should and should not be doing are tainted, right? Sure. Like it becomes a bigger puzzle to, you know, or thing to unpack to really get to the bottom of that. And to get to a place where you have enough clarity where you can trust those instincts or that you can say with assurance that these are truly my values and yeah. this is what's driving me and this is where I want to head. Otherwise, maybe you know that thing that you think you wanna do isn't really the thing that you wanna do. Yeah, it's interesting. This is not part of Hoffman or Made For, but it's something that I would say is one of the um, realizations, biggest realizations I've had about myself and, and I think just humans in general, and that is um, even without the Hoffman process, even without great coaches, just the act of slowing down has a incredible effect of cutting through what is subconscious versus what is really um, in, your, in your kind of your best interest or your highest truth. And so part of a program like Made For is really getting people to slow down enough to really think about things that they don't typically think mm -hmm. about in some ways. And so, yes, in a perfect situation, you can go deep into your inner child and your and your and your subconscious um, and unconscious behaviors through a process like Hoffman or something else. Um, but even without that, just the act of doing a, a exercise that causes you to slow down and really think about what's important to you just the slowing down aspect can have great yeah. great benefits. And yeah. and I've found that my mantra right now is just to slow down in everything I do. Yeah. Because when I slow down when I'm with my kids, I really see the incredible beauty and mystery of of a five year old and a three year old. Um and when I slow down, you know, um when I'm at a dinner party with friends, I really get to feel and experience what someone's going through positive or negatively. Mm. And it's just so easy to our brains are so good at, at thinking they know what the next thing is that we can yeah. move so quickly through life and through decisions and and whatnot. And so I think having clarity um, is one of the real keys is just to do whatever practice it is, but to slow down long enough to really think about it. One of the things that I think um, seems to be a huge priority for you or or a strong value is surrounding yourself with high vibration people, yes. right? Like if you if you canvas your life and I did a deep dive, <laughs> like you always make a point to make sure that you're, you know, dropping in on interesting communities. You know, I know you're part of the summit community, yep. right? Like just, you know, where can I find really interesting people who will push me and broaden my worldview and expand my aperture so I can 
remove those blind spots or solicit the support or be a support system to other people. So I think it would be interesting to talk a little bit about the importance of, of community and finding the right community that supports you and that you can support. Well, and, and I think it's also one of the things that seeking out different communities that are different than you, you know, and really trying to, I mean, that's, you, you brought up Summit. I think one of the things that I like about Summit or a TED conference or TED videos or whatnot is like, there's people that have total different backgrounds, mm. total different educational experiences, total different motivations in life uh, that I can that I can be inspired by and learn from. Um, and so, you know, I think that's one of the hardest things about this this time in our history of COVID is it's been really hard to yeah. foster that, and a lot, yeah. most of it has been through you know, Zoom and, and, and being very intentional about trying to connect with people um, and, and keep community. Um, but, but for me, going back to realizing that life's joy and satisfaction does not come from external accomplishments, where I landed is I need to develop the tools and habits to regulate what's going in internally. And so that led to made for, but also what I learned is, and I already had experiences, but I think I even, it ratcheted even higher on the level of importance is it's all about the relationships that you have. And, you know, I think people who are most fulfilled on their deathbed are those who really invested time in really not, you don't have to have lots of friends, um, but really deep relationships. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the connections that, you know, led Pat and I together um, and continues to benefit both of us deeply is we have a group of guys that have been getting together now for 14 years, uh, once a year, sometimes twice a year um, from, from our different parts of our lives, but we all feel kind of share in the same values. And we also love to do some of the same activities, mainly surfing. And, and this group of guys are all doing different things, all live in different parts of the country, all, you know, some varyings of ages, you know, um, some kids have already gone to college and are long gone and some uh -huh. are having babies next month, you know, or, or in four months because Pat's having another baby. Um, and, uh, and so for me, that has been one of the most beneficial things in my life to have a group of, of and especially as a, as a man, because uh, I think it's even less regular for men versus women in this case, to have a community or a group of people that you can kind of bring anything to and that will always kind of speak their truth to you with anything that's going on in your life. And and so while I have been very fortunate to be part of amazing communities like Summit Series or TED community or these kind of more public facing communities, I think the thing that I benefited the most from in my life has been intimate friendships and this one group of guys that I'm so close with. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, it has been it has been hard in this time right now to stay connected to those relationships and you know to, I, I miss it. You know, I'm I'm a you know I'm a much more introverted person than you, but I've noticed like how much I'm thirsting and hungry for being just with other people. Yeah. You know, like this is like my, this is like my social outlet. <laughs> totally. You know what I mean? No, when I heard that we we're gonna do this in person, yeah. I was so excited because I've done so many Zoom yeah. calls with friends, with made four members. I mean, like, and it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's, if there's anything I have really taken away from this in terms of is that if you 
if you bring the highest level of intention to a video call, you can really connect. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, you can. It's, you it's can. not all the um, physiological things you get from being in person aren't happening, but it's a lot, I think it's a lot more effective than we thought before COVID. Mm -hmm. Like I kind of dismissed video calls, like I'll just call you on the phone. But now like if I have a friend and I haven't seen him in a while, I'm like, we're FaceTiming. Yeah. Because looking in your eyes and, and, and seeing you in real time, it does make a difference. Yeah. When you look out at the landscape right now, you know, and I think this relates to what you're doing with Made For, there's a lot of acrimony, there's a lot of division, there's a lot of you know, heated debate, say the least at the moment. <laughs> the people are suffering. There are lots of people who are um, feeling overlooked, disenfranchised, and this gets translated into a level of vitriol that I don't remember in, mm -hmm. in my lifetime. So how do you think about you know, our current cultural moment and how that relates to your relationship with self-improvement and, you know, mental, emotional, and spiritual well-being. You know, one of the things that I really hoped was going to come out of the COVID experience, and I'm not uh, as satisfied with what I've seen as what I hoped, but I, I think there's still um, directionally where we have to go as a human society is, is, um, is that there's so much more that is in common with us that's really than what divides us. Like if you really just, if you just did a piece of paper and you said, oh, I mean, in any of these issues uh, or any of these situations, like we are all as vulnerable as much more vulnerable than we realize when we see something like COVID. And it affects the person in the high rise in Manhattan as much as someone in the township in South Africa. And I think there's been a lot of great rhetoric over the years and musicians and, and great writing about we really are all one. But I really think the movement that really has to happen is for us to really spend more time looking at the similarities and the beauty of those similarities. And I definitely feel like that is been been connected to my mental health journey and realizing I'm not so special after all. Like this is not, this is not, um, I'm not the only person that's experienced this. There are actually millions of people that are feeling this way or having trouble in this regard. And my desire now is to, is to help them. And, and because that's just kind of what I like to do. But I think where we are right now, the, the, anything that can help people see the similarities and the connections over the differences and the divisions is something that we have to move towards. And I don't have the answer or yeah. the prescription, but that's just like in my gut. It just like when I look around and I slow down, really when I slow down, I really look at the, sp the specifics of what is happening. I'm like, we're just, we're losing the narrative because we're so focused on the negative or the division or the differences mm -hmm. when there's so many positives and similarities there. And and I, I wish I had a better answer to how we get there, but I feel like that's where we have to go. It's certainly the only way forward, but how to get there is is really a tricky problem to solve. I mean, you would think that when COVID was visited upon us as a collective, that that would be a unifying event. And that's and, what I thought. And what we saw was exactly the opposite. opposite. And that's dispiriting, you know, yeah. it's, it's a bummer that 
something that we could have rallied behind and 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 come together around has really created an even deeper divide. And it's easy to lose hope about the future as we see that um, that gap continue to expand. Uh, and I think it's being exacerbated by these digital tools that have been weaponized to pit, pit each other against each other. It's like, I don't have, in my daily life, I'm not having strife and conflict like I see on social media. So I know in my heart that we do have, you know, this great shared, um, you know, unifying, you know, threads and themes and things that we care about with our fellow human beings. But that's not what we see when we look at our screens every day. Yeah. And the impact of that, I think, is not to be um, overstated at this point. And figuring out how to, you know, rectify that is well, no I think small you problem. You use the word weaponized, and I think that is a very fair um, description of how these, um, how, how this, how these, apps and, and sites and targeting and all the stuff that I don't understand exactly how they do it, but I know the effects of what's happening. And it has pitted people against each other in ways that I don't think they ever would have been mm-hmm. in without these, these tools. And so I think one of the things that's important is for people to try to develop some real, um, uh, you know, just awareness around how these things that seemingly seem innocent are affecting us in such yeah. a powerful way. Yeah, and to be more aware and mindful of yeah. just how powerful they are. And to the to the neuroplasticity point, the extent to which they really are manipulating oh. our emotional state. And, and I think that requires appreciating just how easily manipulated we are. Like we, we don't like to believe that we are, but we clearly are. Yeah. And we're seeing that getting played out right now. Yeah. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about uh, this, I don't know what you would call it. It's not really a blog, like this next steps thing mm, that, yeah. you post, that you published recently. Because <laughs> yeah. I think there's you know, a lot of people watching and listening who, who um, you know, aspire to make their imprint in the world and wanna do something interesting that has, that has meaning, but they're you know, much further uh, earlier along the path than, than you. And you kind of created this Multiple, I don't know what it would, what you would call it, a series. Yeah, like a I mean, written it, series. It's so funny. We we're trying to lamp posts, it light posts. Yeah, it's like it's not um, enough content to be called a digital book. And we realized that you know um, we wanted, I wanted to share just basically the lessons that I learned over the last you know ten years of Tom's and in the last two years of building Made for with entrepreneurs and people who want to make a difference in the world. Uh-huh. And I was trying to think of a, a, a medium that. I really enjoy and I love I do love to write and I wrote a book in 2010 yeah. and that was a great experience but I didn't want to go through the whole process of writing a book again cuz it took 2 years of my life and I just didn't have that energy right then and I also feel that you know everyone is consuming everything digitally so so yeah so it's kind of like a, a it's like a it's like a mini book or digital series of lessons that has you know, pictures and videos and anecdotes from uh, my life experiences through Tom's and and then most recently made for. And uh, it was really fun. Like, I think that like in one of the things that I try to characterize most of my work projects around now is, is it fun? Mm-hmm. And it was fun to kind of go back over memory lane and to really kind of sit with, okay, wh- how did I actually start 
like doing that in, you know, and why was that so effective with Tom's and how could someone who's starting a business out of their garage today or wants to create a new, new nonprofit, like how can they benefit from the lessons that I learned? Yeah. And, and so I wrote this, you know, series of uh, lessons I call next steps. And it was really about looking over the past 15 years to kind of, in some ways for myself to think about like, okay, what do I want to bring into the future? And uh, it's been really fun because it's been, it, i I, I published it about a week or two ago and and I've gotten so many great interactions and conversations with people online because of it. Yeah, so it's sort of, you know, basically guideposts, yeah, right? Like go with your go it. with your gut. Yeah. Like this is how you trust your intuition, why giving is good. Like they're yeah. basically principle based. Yeah, right? totally based on principles through a lot of funny stories that happened right. through the early days of Tom's and and most recently being an entrepreneur again with with Made For. What's your relationship with Tom's now? So it's it's such a, I, I describe it this way, is I feel like Tom's is um, my child that's in college. And uh -huh. I say that because, um, you know, whenever I, uh, you know, call and have a great conversation with the CEO at Tom's or someone at Tom's, like they're always seem to be really happy to hear from me and we have a great conversation, but I don't show up in the dorm room. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. I'm not just showing up as a proud dad. And, you know- Is your laundry clean? Do you yeah, need your laundry picked up and done? Exactly. So I'm there. I always am happy when they give me a call uh, and I'm more than happy to give, you know, um, my perspective on something that they're making decision on, but I'm definitely not showing up in the dorm room. And then also it's kind of like in college, they have parents weekend, right? Mm. And so you, once once time of year, parents come out and they get to experience yeah. everything. That's kind of yeah. the same thing. Like I put a dog and pony show on it. Blake's coming. <laughs> yeah, and let's so let's, get ready. let's see what's what's happening. But, you know, it's Tom's like many businesses in, in you know, in, in retail and the consumer space have been hit hard by COVID. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some things that have been real blessings. I mean, the online businesses continue to grow dramatically. Um, but um, but I think there's a, you know, it's a long road ahead as we see yeah. all of retail try to figure out what the future looks like. How many retail outlets are there now? I mean, you know, in terms of the, I mean, I think at one point, you know, in terms of, number of outlets that we sold, it was like 8,000 or 10,000. Um, you know, we never really got deep into our own retail. I think we had 15 stores mm -hmm. when I st stopped being involved. Um, but mainly it's through, you know, your wholesale partners who have their own challenges, you know, you know, like a Nordstrom's or whatnot. Right. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, we always had a strong online business because the business was really started, you mm -hmm. know, in my garage and selling online. But that has even become more important because so many people are shopping at yeah. home now. So to date, how many shoes have been donated? So we're almost at, I mean, we're so close. I mean, it's like 98 or 99 million. Right. Um, so we're really close to that 100 million mark. And I think that's when they'll probably bring you back for the celebration. Right, that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's and also then you got into uh, prescription eyewear. There's all, all these other kind of giving yeah. um, arms to Tom's these days that have broadened that which scope. Is, it's just been really, I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, those are my greatest memories of my, you know, Tom's, you know, journey. It was mm -hmm. not just in the shoes that we gave, but then being like, oh, we can, you know, help people get cataract surgeries, you know, and in 15 minutes, take someone who's blind and within 48 hours, give them their sight back through a surgery that we can pay for by selling a pair of sunglasses mm -hmm. on Abbey Kinney, you know? So um, I think 
the thing I'm most proud of within the walls of Tom's, but then even with Tom's influence on other businesses has been just that how so many entrepreneurs and businesses see that you can be a profitable business, but also have a really meaningful impact on the world. Yeah, I mean, that's the real legacy of this whole thing. Like not only did you pioneer this like one for one model, it really reconfigured the capitalistic landscape to establish and demonstrate that you can create a very um, profitable company at scale and still make the giving component of it very, very real and meaningful. Not yeah. just mean, not the, you know, it's it's so heavily integrated that they're not separate at all. And, and that's that really word. that the ripple effect of that. I mean, you just see it everywhere you look now. Well, I think what's happened is is the society is and consumers have changed their expectations of businesses. So before, and it's you know, it's not just Tom's, there's been a lot of amazing companies that have, you know, kind of been birthed around the same time or shortly thereafter that have really helped change where the customer expects from a company. And so ultimately a company mm-hmm. is gonna behave in the way that gets more customers. Yeah. So and that's just the economic law there. And so what used to be okay, and that was companies, you know, having a CSR department and writing a check to a nonprofit that was really meaningless, you know, in terms of the scale of their business was, you know, inconsequential but looked good in a photograph in their annual report to now Customers want to really know, you know, how is this being sourced? You know, you know, what are your labor practices? What are you doing with your profits? Mm-hmm. What percentage of my purchase is actually going to do something besides just go to the bottom line? Like the the, the customers become um, much more demanding. Yeah, and and I think that's good for society. The expectation of transparency it's and huge. and and the expectation that there is something more meaningful than just the balance sheet, the P&L statement of this company. But, you know, does, is there a Warby Parker without a Tom's? Like you did yeah. set in, mo- I mean, it's, you weren't the first to do this, but you were the first to do it at such a massive scale, sure. right? And yeah. that's made a huge impact. And I look at, um, I look at that impact in the same way that I look at what Scott Harrison did in the inverse situation of creating a giving model that be- that was like an aspirational brand, like bringing, the best of what you know a capitalist culture could could offer the nonprofit sector totally. and merging those worlds and and what he's been able to create and the res- the legacy of that on just the giving ecosystem at large. Oh yeah, I mean it's changed the way that that charities operate, the way they communicate, the way they market um, in such a profound way, mm-hmm. and it's been such a joy. I've been part of Charity Water since day one. Scott's yeah. one of my great friends. It's the greatest. It's, yeah. the, it's super cool. But when you look now, there's also like the kind of dark underbelly of all of this is the is the greenwashing that you yes. see also, where there's a lot of lip service to totally. this that isn't meaningful or substantial in any way, and yeah. it's very easy for a company to say we give away one percent or we do this, sure. and they're really doing it from. Uh, you know, a marketing, it's a positioning and marketing yeah. decision and not really, you know, part of the ethos of, of, or the mission of the company. Yeah, that's the thing. When I speak at universities or lecture at different things, I always say is like, you know, I think the customer um, demands transparency and authenticity and you're better off to have no giving program and just be, we sell this, we make money, mm-hmm. we have a great product. If you like our product, buy it verse trying to sprinkle on some type of feel good message right. on because I think people just see through that and I think it backfires. Um, and I think that's 
been one of the harder parts about having this legacy is I have seen so many things that I've just cringed at, mm. especially more with bigger businesses that have tried to, you know, add this on because someone in marketing read in, right. in a case study about Tom's in a right. business school. Um, and so, you know, but what I always say is as long as the collective direction is to a higher consciousness in how we operate our businesses, then I feel that um, what we started in motion, you know, 14 years ago now is going to continue to have positive effects. Like it, it has to be directionally going that way. And, um, and I think that it really goes back to like, you know, how conscious are we being mm. as consumers and as entrepreneurs or mm -hmm. people who work at companies? Well, there's a strain of economic, economics oriented people who who cast aspersions on the the conscious capitalism model like sure. oh, it's bullshit it's lip service but i don't believe that to be true no. like i think you know what you've created and there's other examples out there establish not only its viability but it's almost de rigueur if you want to be competitive in today's world i i think so i mean John Mackey, the founder of Whole yeah. Foods, you he's know, a friend, he's been on the show. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I did his conference. And okay, all, so I've yeah. met all these. I've met a lot of these people yeah. that are and, that are doing he, this. And I think and, he's, he and through his books, yeah. and he just came out with a new one. Um, you know, proved that this is good business, and I think that's what's so important. Is and I think that's why we've seen a shift, and why more and more companies have have adopted this way of thinking. Is you know, there are a lot of stakeholders that you need to pay attention to um, in order to, you know, maximize your profits. Yeah. And it's not just the investor or the financier, it's the employees, it's, you know, who helps make these products. Like mm -hmm. everyone has to be healthy for the business to be healthy. Right. Knowing everything that you know now and all these experiences that you've had, what is the advice that you would give to the young upstart Blake, <laughs> who's you know hustling billboards in Nashville or mm, starting I, his laundry business. Wow, I. Uh, I mean, you've done pretty good. I'm gonna Was there anything you change, or yeah. where where did you I'm, see yourself going astray? I, Maybe I, on the external validation piece. Well, yeah, this is where uh, it's interesting. It's going to all come back to uh, the inner journey that I've been on, uh, that we've spoken about throughout the show here, and that is. Um, through a plant medicine journey I had, through some um, work at Hoffman, I have a consistent theme that has that has um, been revealed to me. And if I could have and if I could have understood this at an earlier age, I think um, I just would I would have I would have struggled less internally. And that is, um, I'm good enough. You know, I'm fine. I don't. I don't need to be any more perfect. I, I, uh, everything that I have done and that I do um, is my best effort, and my best effort is is enough. And I think a lot of people um, have this inner critic, and it can be a great, you know, driver for success and and accomplishment. But it also, you know, comes with a lot of collateral damage. And I think. I've carried around a lot of stress and a lot of weight uh, internally, and I've uh, enjoyed things probably far less than I could have if I just would have known that no matter what I do, it's exactly what I'm destined to do, and it's good enough. Mm. Isn't there that fear though, that if you felt like you were good enough when you were <laughs> young, that you never would have done the things that you did? 
I don't know. I mean, that's definitely um, a fair uh, assessment of that. And I definitely, there were some times and through this inner work that I've done where I'm like, well, if I hadn't have been like so competitive and I haven't been, then I wouldn't have had this drive. Um, but it all comes, you know, it all comes with a price. And I, I wouldn't change the way my life has unfolded for one minute, nor can I. Um, but I do feel that um, there is a peace and a calmness that I have today that I wish I would have had earlier in my life. Mm. That's a good place to end it. Mm, great. Um, so much respect for for everything that you've built and the service to the world. But I think more than that, just uh, respect and appreciation for the person that you are. Like mm. you carry yourself with a great deal of, of presence and equanimity. And it's a tribute to all the work that you've done. Like I can feel it sitting across from you. Mm. Like you're, you're here, you're who you are. You feel like integrated, you're authentically yourself. And that's a reflection of all of these things that you that you've done and attribute to um, to that work. And I think ultimately it's only going to benefit everything that you put your energy into. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Yeah, it's been great. Um, made for getmadefor.com is Get, the website, yeah, that's right? That's correct. Getmadefor.com. And you're easy to find on the internet, just at Blake Mykoski. If people want to find the um, the kind of mini book series thing, is that that's on your website? Yeah, it's on blakemykoski.com. Cool. Yeah. Right on, man. Cool. All right. Thanks, dude. Let's Thank do you. this again sometime. Okay. Right on. I want to interview you next Peace. time. <laughs> Anytime, dude. <laughs> Plants. So good, right? I told you, he is a unique and beautiful human, that Blake Mykoski. If you dug Blake and what he's all about, I suggest that you check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com, where you will find links and resources to everything we discussed today. Give him a follow on the socials at Blake Mykoski on Instagram and Twitter, and check out the Made For program at getmadefor.com. If you find yourself intrigued, use the code richroll at getmadefor.com to get 20% off the Made For program. It's a special gift from Blake. And no, I'm not an affiliate, just uh, sharing his very generous offer. Reminder that my new book, Voicing Change, is available exclusively through my website. And we are shipping globally. Inspiration and timeless wisdom from the podcast, all wrapped in a beautiful coffee table style book. Really proud of this. So pick up your copy today, available only at richroll.com slash VC. We got another roll on AMA coming up later this week. So please give me a call at 424-235-4626 and leave a message with your question. We might just answer it on air. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com slash donate. Today's episode was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video version was shot and edited by Blake Curtis. Graphic elements were created by Jessica Miranda. Portraits, courtesy of Allie Rogers. And sponsor relationships are managed by David Kahn. Theme music, as always, by my stepsons, Tyler and Trapper, and my nephew, Hari Mathis. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here Thursday with another Roll On. Until then, peace, plants, service. Namaste. Yeah.